Thanks for pressing play. Feeling burned out by chance? Have you been feeling burned out or felt a little burned out over the last handful of months or have some friends and colleagues and loved ones who have felt that way? Well, you are not alone. We live at a time that is extraordinarily challenging and yet exciting. And many of us have felt freaked out, blown out, and burned out. Our guest today calls what's been happening a macro stress event. Her name is Jennifer Moss. She's the author of the brand new number one bestseller, The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. And she has an extraordinary point of view. And we get into it, particularly how to harness this stress experience and transform it into what she calls post-traumatic growth. What are the real causes of burnout and what organizations can do to prevent it? why traditional wellness initiatives fall short and how companies can build an anti-burnout strategy based on prevention, not perks, how business leaders can measure burnout in their own organizations and what leaders can do to develop a healthier culture that prioritizes resilience and curiosity. And of course we dig into what responsibility do we have for our own mental health and a lot more. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning Real Dialogue podcast, and we're on a mission to bring back real conversation and stimulate some real thinking. Podcast Magazine calls us, quote, the best business podcast, and once The Economist called me off-putting to some, whatever you call us, this is the oddcast for people who value real, different conversations. My friends at Hallow App are the real relationship network. We all know that legacy social media algorithms manipulate what we see and have proven to be detrimental to us and society. None of that is true on Hallow App. So let's get real. Your real friends in real private on Hallow App, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com, or search Hallow App on your smartphone app store. And Category Pirates is now a mini ebook series on Amazon.com. Some recent ebooks include personal branding and how it's the me disease, the power of a point of view, category design scorecard, the no ocean strategy as opposed to blue ocean strategy, and much more. Check out Category Pirates on Amazon today. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Jennifer, it sure is great to see you, and uh, I have a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Shoot. How's it going, eh? <laughs> it's funny. I get that all the time, and I don't know if I've ever said that word ever in my life, but uh, it is definitely a Canadian <laughs> trope for sure. Well, as, as you might know, I was born and raised in Montreal, and I lived in Toronto for years. Um, I know where I know Waterloo, Ontario, quite well. I spent more time in London, Ontario, than I did in Waterloo, but um, have had a many many a drunken evening in Waterloo. <laughs> yeah, um, my alma mater is Western, so lived there for a few years too. I love London. We always go back. There's a lot of nostalgia there for me. Yes, my ex-wife uh, is a uh, University of Western Ontario graduate, and uh, I actually met her there. So. Uh, I know that neighborhood well, and I don't know what it's like today, but there was a point in time where, uh, for a small town, you could have a lot of fun in London, Ontario. 
you could it, the density of bars to population was <laughs> quite um quite amazing i think maybe the the most density of bars in any other place to the size of the amount of people that were there and maybe because <laughs> the university um you know just pushed out a lot of athletes and uh i think a lot of them too i mean i look at my husband who is a a pro hockey player he played for the London Knights and played for, for Western as well. And I think the amount of hockey players that were there could have kept the the bars going um, pretty much just with them on their own. Well, I think what most people don't realize is that um, one of the qualifications for being a Canadian hockey player is you must have a second liver. <laughs> it's exactly, it's exactly true. It's probably why athletes need to retire around 35 because they're just totally depleted physically and they've drank themselves into retirement. They can't take the drinking anymore. Um, <laughs> they can't keep up. I have a buddy and I shouldn't say who he is, but he is one of the on-field managers in the major league, uh, in major league baseball. Mm -hmm. And he said, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline, particularly when they're on the road. Not to overeat, overdrink, and uh, shall I say, overindulge in some other things. I'm not surprised by that. I think anyone on the road can say that. Um, but then you add in, you know, just these all these guys together out uh, and adventuring. <laughs> it leads to some debauchery, I think. Yes. Yes. I spent a lot of time on, uh, on debauchery island. Now... Uh, <laughs> First of all, I love your work. So thank you for this work that you're doing. I think it's very important. And obviously the timing of it is critical. Before maybe we talk about burnout and all that stuff, one of the things that fascinates me about you is your work in the domain of happiness. And so um, can you tell me what has attracted you to working on happiness and maybe the definition of happiness that you happiness experts, if I can call you that, um, use. So maybe we'll talk about the opposite of, of burnt out and, and, and pissed off and upset and freaked out and stressed out. <laughs> Let's talk maybe about happiness to start. Well, the, the joke is, is that I've gone from being a happiness expert to an unhappiness expert. And uh, I think actually what you realize through the research is that they go hand in hand. You know, you can't actually experience an increase in happiness at point unless you've gone through some sort of um, challenge in your life that gives you that ability to experience resilience and rebound. Uh, but my story is really interesting, I think, and I, I did talk a lot about this in the early days of my work was I, um, I, my husband, I mentioned he was a pro athlete. He also played pro lacrosse and that's why we we're based in California for, for a decade. Um, he played for the San Jose stealth, which the shark zone. And so we were there and he became acutely paralyzed because he actually, um, got at the time it was swine flu, the, uh, epidemic that was going through at that time and uh, then contracted Guillain-Barre syndrome. And what, we realized in that moment is that athletes get this incredible amount of psychological fitness training very early on in their lives. They, they are identified as high performers. So, you know, they go through that process of learning how to rebound, how to deal with loss, how to collaborate, how to have emotional flexibility, you know, all these things that actually lead to high levels of happiness and able to have post-traumatic growth moments after they go through these pretty serious things. And so part of what we noticed when Jim was in the hospital rehabbing was that 
this attitude played a big role in his healing. So six weeks later, he was walking out of the hospital and, uh, and they had said he may not ever walk again, or then it was a year. And then he's walking out after six weeks. And it sort of became our, I don't know, our mindset shift at that point to understand what it was that that contributed to that healing. And, uh, and that's when we started up the company Plasticity Labs, the idea of neuroplasticity, and then going into workplaces, figuring out how we can experience post-traumatic growth uh, through change and through trauma and helping people deal with stress. And that happiness piece was a big part of it. But what I did factor in it after a few years of sort of working in this happiness space is that we were working with companies that were going from good to great. You know, they had pretty good hygiene. They had pretty good burnout prevention strategies. They were doing the table stake stuff right. And so then the happiness piece was optimization. Um, but a lot of companies don't have that right. And they're really stressing their people out. So they're sort of feeling tone deaf when people come in and say, hey, you know, let's practice gratitude and that'll cure your burnout. Or, you know, we need to practice empathy building because that will cure your burnout. And what we came to really want to focus on after that is how do we work on these things much further upstream? Fascinating. And so I'm curious, is there a common, you know, I've read a lot on happiness. We've had uh, many happiness authors on, um, and uh, it's a field I've been fascinated by for a very long time. And I also find it fascinating that for most of the study of human mental health, uh, we didn't set, study uh, happiness. We studied illness. And it's really only been in how, how long? Roughly the last four decades-ish, maybe? Tell, tell me, how, how long have we been studying happiness? Well, Martin Seligman, uh, head of the American Psychological Association, when he started to think about happiness to find PERMA, um, this idea of this, you know, way of thinking about happiness, which you're probably familiar with, but the acronym stands for, you know, positive, uh, sort of just positive affect, positive mindset. And that includes optimistic thinking, cognitive optimism, gratitude, and then engagement. So feeling engaged in life, healthy, productive relationships is the R, having meaning in life is the M, and then the A is accomplishment. So a sense of accomplishment, you know, and value and what you do and how you contribute to the world. And so that was, you know, around the 60s that he was starting to think about these things, 60s and 70s. So it's been, yeah, like 50 or longer years where this was a big moment though. I mean, at that time he wasn't taken as seriously as he is now, um, but that work would be foundational to the way that we think about happiness. He's now since revised that there's sort of 21 points. Talbin Shahar is a great example you're probably familiar with as well. He talks about the fact that you really do need to be unhappy to be happy. Um, as well. So he talks about those counterpoints and happiness set points. And then Sonia Libomorsky is also another one who really talks about just the um, impact of gratitude and thinking about, um, you know, kindness and compassion, some of those other factors is playing a role in our happiness. There's so many folks that are engaged in this work now, which I think is really great. Um, but, um, but yes, it's, a, it's really about a, a long-term sort of fulfillment not a diet, more of a lifestyle change way of thinking about about fulfillment and contentment, not just happiness. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, the other part of it that seems important to me that rarely gets talked about, and it sort of dovetails into you know your new book, is what you might call life design. And what I've noticed, Jennifer, is 
for many people, certainly for me, when I was first sort of learning this stuff, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, it was a very radical idea that you could design your own life, that you have agency. We're lucky enough to live in a part of the world where, you know, we don't have many of the social and political problems that a huge percentage of the world does have. Um, you know, um, my heart breaks right now for Afghanistan, by way of example, They're, they don't have the luxury of this discussion right now, uh, but we do. And so this radical idea that we have agency, that we can be the author of our own story, that we can design our own life. And humans are the only animals, of course, that can do that, can, that can, that have a sense of past, present, and future. And we can look to the future and we can say, well, I want to be an author, and I want to be an expert on these topics, and I want to write books, or, and I want to get married, and maybe have a family, or whatever it is you want to do, right? We have that agency, and we can make decisions today that dramatically impact our lives going forward, and of course, in the moment. And that's a very powerful thing, as opposed to what I think a lot of us uh, sort of uh, get told, either consciously or unconsciously, is that life is something that happens to us. And that uh, we just have to deal with what shows up. And of course, that's an element of life. But there's a huge element of life that says, well, I can choose where I want to live and I can choose who I want to marry and I can choose what I want to do for work, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm curious how you think about happiness and this, this stress and this sort of crisis, mental health crisis we appear to be having right now. You'll tell me how all those things sit in the context of agency and the ability to design one's life. Well, you're probably familiar with uh, Barbara Frederick, uh, Fredrickson's work on growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And the people who have this ability to have a growth mindset really means that like sky's the limit, you know, that they can go through things, but their mindset is that no matter what, they have a plan B, a plan C, you know, they um, don't really look at challenges as setbacks. They look at them as opportunities. And that's the group that really experiences high levels of happiness because they're, they sort of don't see that their issue or their life or their problems are fixed. And when we think that they're fixed, we reduce our sense of, um, you know, belief that we have agency to have control over those things. And when you feel like you have agency, it's actually one of the most important you know, consequential parts right now to whether we're going to be burned out or not, you know, and, and I think that's what is so interesting about the chronic stress and mental health piece is that we can't solve for this problem right now. We can't solve for the pandemic and people are really struggling with that. I actually just put a column together. I do a radio show and one of the and I'm talking about surge capacity right now. You know, we've been in surge capacity, which is just this ability to be in an emergency, you know, for t- 20 months. And we are depleting our surge capacity. And it's because we just want to be able to control the situation. We haven't yet come to a point where we've accepted that this is where we're at. And, um, and that for people with high levels of growth mindset or conscientiousness or high-performing people, it's really difficult for them. And so I think that that we're dealing with, I want to have agency, and yet I have no control over this thing over here. So it's about identifying how we can actually control some of the controllables uh, because we can't solve for the big problem. And it is very hard for, um, I think, many of us who feel like we are result producers, who feel like we can take action today to 
make a diff- difference today and into the future, that we can change things, um, that we can create things. Uh, it's very hard to fire up our web browsers or our, look at our televisions and, and look at something like in Afghanistan and, or, of course, a COVID and, and look at many of the failures of many, many people uh, in these things and just, you know, scream at the browser or the TV and go, what the fuck's going on here? And like, but <laughs> yeah. of course, sooner or later, we do have to get to a place that says, even if you are a person who is very affected by the world, I, there's, there's really very little I can do about Afghanistan. There's really very little I can do about the failures and the idiocies around so many of the issues around COVID. It's far beyond, you know, the president of the United States, Angela Merkel, (laughs) the prime minister of Canada. There's only so much they can do in the face of many of these things. Right. And they're the most powerful people in our world. And so how do we come to this place, particularly if we are a person who uh, does have empathy does, you know, look, I'm a crier. I, I, I hear about what just happened at the southern, the southern border of, of the United States, and I see those individuals and what's happening. I've been to Haiti, and I fucking cry and yell. Mm. Uh, and yet, of course, you know, yes, I can donate money, and yes, I have, and, and those sorts of things. I do, you, we all try to do what we think we can do to situations that we're touched by. But at the end of the day, there's very little impact that I can have, be it on... Uh, our success with COVID or the situation elsewhere in the world or et cetera. And so how do we, on one hand, be a caring, empathetic person who isn't desensitized to these things, but at the same time, if you spend a lot of uh, emotional uh, energy in these places, at least if you're me, you become very useless very quickly if you can't snap out of it. Uh, I love that you asked that question or you're discussing this in particular issue, because I think we become really myopic as a coping strategy and which is really dangerous because the more we normalize, then the more we end up becoming um, disconnected from humanity. Um, But at, at the same token, we cannot like I mentioned, the surge capacity piece, we're barely holding on to our own lives right now. And the idea of adding in all this extra has been really challenging. And that's why you see so many people depleted because we're in this macro stress event. And usually a macro stress event is like a natural disaster where there might be recovery from it, but the the acute event ends and then we go through this process of grieving and recovering. But this is like living inside of a hurricane every single day. We're just in this, this red alert state all the time. And there's all these other things that are happening to our bodies and minds because of that being in fight or flight every single moment, every single day. But then when we have these other really big events and these things that make us feel sort of this uncertainty for the rest of our lives and the state of affairs, you know, across the world, there's no real solution for it in some sort of silver bullet way that I'd love to be able to, to share. But a lot of it is that we have to be able to get to a point of acceptance and understanding that right now, the world that we're in isn't the ideal world that we want to be in. So rationalizing that and then also being able to give parts of ourselves to the things we really care about because empathy is probably going to be the one thing that helps us survive all this. 
um, without completely, you know, derailing humankind. But we also have to still pull in those reserves for ourselves. So it's it's like a dance that we're constantly doing right now. Um, but I think the acceptance piece is the one that I'm coming to understand is going to be, I think, the most important way that we're going to sustain um, our own mental health through all of this. Can you say a little bit more about that, Jennifer? Well, just that, <laughs> just that one of the things I've noticed, you know, especially as we've sort of um, gone through the last 20 months, is that part of humanity is being part of a tribe, right? We're tribal. The only way we could have survived on the savannas is if we were, you know, mirroring each other's nonverbal cues. At the time, we didn't have language in the same way. So we had to actually look at each other and, you know, be able to mimic each other's behaviors. And that's this wonderful power of mirror neurons. So we can mirror each other and then say, I can survive by being part of the tribe that you've accepted me to. And now, you know, we won't get eaten by saber tooth tigers. So those things that are happening you know, just we need them um, to, and this last year, we've sort of atrophied that part of our, you know, genetic makeup, our genetic experience, our biological need to connect. And all of that has created this myopathy because we aren't actually naturally sharing those connections because we've been isolated and, and disconnected. And then you go, you know, like workplace, for example, it used to be a place where you'd kibitz, you know, in the and by the water cooler, or, you know, ask how the game was last night or check in on people's kids. And we're not doing any of that just in the way that we're communicating now. Relationships are being replaced with technology and not augmented. So all of these things sort of are coming together and forcing us to be much more individualistic. And over time, that'll have catastrophic effects on ourselves, on our um, on our communities, on the economy. It's it's a trickle down sort of macroeconomic worry that we all should be concerned about if we don't start finding ways to regroup, reconnect, find that way of um, challenging each other to care more about the world. The more myopic we become, the less our world will be likely to you know, survive this because the hu humanity is really rooted fundamentally, according to Maslow in just these basic needs. And part of that is love and connection. Love and connection. Interesting. So uh, let me maybe bounce something off of you. And this is this sort of line of thinking has, has come from, uh, my work with a Silicon Valley entrepreneur uh, named, named Doug Campbelljohn, and he's the co-founder of a new early stage company called Airspeed. And here's the aha. And let me see if this the premise for the business makes any sense to you. The aha sort of goes like this. When this new digital, what we would call maybe native digital work environment that knowledge workers are clearly now in, of course, got massively accelerated. It was going that way, but I mean, it was like poof. Stop, change, start, right? And as we did that, there were some miraculous things that occurred, obviously. Uh, you know, we've had Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom, uh, several times, and he's an incredible guy. And I think they should give him the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom <laughs> because few businesses have scaled like that. And Stuart Butterfield, a fellow Canadian, founder of Slack. You know, so if you just take those two technologies from newer companies, you know, where the fuck would we have been without Zoom and Slack? 
But so here's the sort of aha that I think if I can represent some of the thinking from Doug and Airspeed is if you say Zoom is about communication primarily and you say Slack is about um, collaboration primarily, how we work together, how we communicate, how we come together. You said these two words, love and connection. And the aha that Doug has had is as we rushed to to digitally uh, collaborate and communicate, we we forgot that in order for human beings to be able to do anything together, communicate and collaborate, we first have to connect. You and I have to get to know each other a little bit. Oh, you live in London or you live in Waterloo, Ontario. And I grew up in Canada, you know, and we find, we always try to find human ways of connecting similarities um, so that we can then get on with it, so to speak. Right. And so, so the aha here is, uh, trying to bring forward a set of digital technologies that help people connect as human beings, as opposed to just collaborate and communicate. This may be, and maybe I'm asking for some free startup advice here, but does this sound like a good idea of something that we should be working on? A hundred percent. If you can solve for how we can create bonds and friendships and really in healthy, productive relationships in the workplace um, through digital technology, even if you can solve for that in real life. I mean, the fact that so many people are feeling lonely and isolated in the workplace, even when they were in person has been a problem for a long time, but, but there is something that is missing right now from the technology and just the way that we connect with people is based on a set of, you know, chemical responses that have been, you know, thousands and thousands of years built into who we are in our DNA. So that is what we need to be able to solve for. We're so meeting fatigued. We were pre-pandemic and now it's even worse. But the problem is, is that to create those relationships, if you like look at the Dunbar number, the five, you know, closest friends are really that you should be fostering and working on your relationships inside of work. We spend a lot of time trying to create breadth of relationships. You know, we have these team meetings where we, or these like offsites where we have to meet as many people as possible and, and try to prove that we've met, you know, other people and we have to sit awkwardly beside strangers so that we can create new relationships. We are better off actually to, you know, find out who's really connected to someone because they spent a lot of time emailing them or they've been phoning them and they're close to them, but they've never met them in person. We should be spending more time at really deepening relationships within our teams. And so it's a, it's a depth versus a breadth of relationships that we need to focus on. The problem is, is that now we're adding, you know, more meetings for one-on-ones and more people to have to use technology to connect with each other in these deeper places, which require a lot of time and more energy. Um, But the downstream impact is really phenomenal. When you look at Gallup's Q12, the reason why they asked you, you know, do you have a best friend at work is because it just offers so many benefits. It even reduces burnout by 41%. I mean, just massive benefits. But it's very difficult to create. Hold on, Jennifer. Can I slow you down there for a second? Yes. Say what you just said about burnout and friends at work. Say that again for me, please. If you have a best best friend at work, and I write about this as a really important strategy inside of 
the book because loneliness is a predictor of burnout. It's one of the six root causes, lack of community. So having community at work, one best friend will make it so that you're more likely to be promoted. You're more like you're 50% more likely to stay. You're more likely to um, about 30% more likely to um, have psychological safety and burnout is reduced by 41% plus life satisfaction includes because you handle stress different than someone and better than someone who doesn't have a friend at work. They handle stress in a very, you know, a less effective, more maladaptive way. So there's all these reasons to have a friend at work, but what Q12 identified in Gallup is that it's one best friend. That's it. It's not a whole bunch of people. It's one single ally that you consider a very close personal friend of yours inside the workplace. So what we need to be doing is actually focusing on how do we deepen relationships with people? How do we get those people physically together as much as possible within the constraints? So say you're a disparate team. How do you have an opportunity to have friends connect with each other in the office once a year, twice a year, you know, hybrid, you can't have people offsite at, at different times. You need to have them onsite at the same time and offsite at the same time. You know, we have to be really looking at smaller groups, smaller teams, close relationships amongst one or two people. And that can be the major difference in how we're going to solve for this problem of loneliness and isolation. Thank you for that. That was very powerful. Now, maybe you might be the person on planet Earth, or you're certainly one of them, who is the most educated and knowledgeable about where we are right now in terms of how people are feeling at work, how successful they're being, how productive they're being or not. So could you walk me through some of the the research and some of the ahas that you and your colleagues have come to, particularly of late? Yeah, so I did this... um... I got together with a group of really well-known researchers in this space. So Dr. Christina Maslock, Dr. Michael Leiter, they are the ones um, that those two, along with Susan Jackson, were really a big, played a big role in defining burnout. Um, they define it for the World Health Organization, which is a big deal. They really understand that it's these certain root causes. And then Dr. David Whiteside, who's an expert in organizational behavior, so took at the practical business side of it. And we came together and, uh, and then measured. We were able to get data from 46 different countries. And we asked uh, open-ended questions, too, so our qualitative responses, so people responded with their own words as well as getting quantitative data. That made such a huge impact because we could hear what people were feeling. And the data showed that... Um, that burnout is universal. It's really globally felt right now. And that's where the epidemic piece has come in because what we found is that um, of the respondents, 89% said their well being had declined. Um, 85% said um, work life. Hold on, slow down. Yes. S- some of us didn't go to school and some of us drink a lot. Let's go through these numbers carefully, <laughs> <Yes>. Jennifer. <laughs> so let me let me have them in order here so I can understand yes. them. <laughs> I'm happy to, to slow it down too because I tend to get really excited, <laughs> as you can tell, and I'm so passionate about the topic. No, and I love I, that. Yeah. But I got I, thrown I out really of school care. at 18, so I'm just not that smart. Okay, so let's go through the numbers. I doubt that. But so, um, yeah, we found that 89% of people said their well-being had declined. So that was significant. Um, 85% said their work-life balance, you know, had been 
negatively impacted. We found that um, that people said that they couldn't talk about mental health at work. 67% of those people that said they couldn't talk about mental health at work were um, burned out always or often. So that whole impact on them was significant. And then we just found in general, people described their um, their sense of loneliness and disconnection. Around 50% at the time were saying that they had felt completely disconnected from their coworkers. We saw that across family and friendships as well. But the fact that they were feeling that many people, almost half of the, you know, the group were feeling like they were already disconnected from their coworkers. And this was um, between the second and third waves. So now we're talking, you know, even longer disconnections um, from people and then people also feeling like it's going to be a while before that comes back. Sorry to interrupt you again. Is there a standard definition of what disconnected means? I mean, I think most of us understand probably what you mean by the word, but is there a baseline understanding you want us to have around what because because you seem to be zeroed in on that that word a lot. Well, that's the language that we used in the in the research was just, you know, how connected you felt um, and how disconnected you felt. And that was really this concept. And we defined it, but just this idea of not feeling like um, you have friends at work, you know, essentially the idea of the Q12. Do you feel like you have friendships and a lot of what we found, and maybe why the millennials, uh, the millennial group was so impacted, was uh, that they are dealing with more single occupancy dwellings. We find that there is less, you know, multi generational families living together. More people in urban settings are living by themselves, and then you have this workplace issue uh, where you are now not connecting with people in the workplace just by proxy of being there. And then we also just found that. And this was in the themes. This is why the quantitative, the the uh, sort of description of how people were feeling in their own words piece was so meaningful, because a lot of our younger workforce were saying things like, "I just started this job in the pandemic, and I don't, I didn't have a chance to meet my boss or meet my coworkers, so I don't have anything to draw from. I feel like my career is being left behind because I don't." know these people. And so I can't feel like there's a lack of trust or they don't trust me. And, you know, you look at a research that Dan Shawbell did, for example, found that if you don't meet someone in person, you can, it decreases trust. So then, which is foundational to good workplace cultures, um, we're losing that. So all of these things are just happening by, by default of more people living alone, you know, more people using work as their place, whether they appreciated it before or not, that it is a place where you have these opportunities to collide and and talk about things in life and develop friendships. And then also people starting off their jobs in the first, you know, in the, their first job or even just in this new company and they're starting it in the midst of a pandemic. And so that's what's creating this separation between teammates, really. Yes. It's interesting you bring up the millennials and, and uh, what we lovingly refer to around here as the native digitals. Uh, I was surprised. I read an article recently. I'm almost positive it was in the journal. It might have been in the New York Times. but And the article was about how um, amongst the knowledge worker set that um, native digitals, roughly people under the age of 35, actually want to come back and are coming back even wearing masks and the like. Uh, more so than um, uh, native analogs. And I found that shocking. 
And what the article exposed was exactly the point that you're on, Jennifer, which is if I'm a 28-year-old person or a 32-year-old person, I'm, I'm you know trying to be on the upswing in my career. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to contribute. Uh, I'm trying to blossom and all the shit, right? Um, and what I don't have that someone like maybe you or I have, I don't have a reputation yet. I'm not known for being a result producer or for being, you know, uh, a specialist in a certain area or whatever the case may be. And so because at 28 or 32, you don't have the relationships like you're describing and you might have a beginning of a reputation, but you don't have a 35 year reputation as an ass kicker. This is problematic uh, to these folks. Uh, So I'm curious to your reaction to that. You're, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that we did get from the data was this, I don't have the same agency, you know, as my boss who can kind of make decisions. I still feel sort of like I have a lack of agency, a lack of control. I don't have any decision-making ability. Plus I'm, I feel like maybe my career is being set back because I'm being ignored. Um, and some, you know, there's a lot of managers and companies that really hated having to lead through this way of, you know, digitally leading and connecting. And so they're keen to get back. And what's happening now is we're seeing that those people that want to stay back, there's this worry that it's going to actually make it so that they're not being, you know, seen or that they're not being recognized or maybe could impact possibilities of promotion. And so when you look at that younger workforce that does have a plan, a strategy to, to have upward mobility and to be promoted, you know, get to their goals, like you mentioned, if they're not being seen or don't feel like the work that they're doing is being witnessed or they have to work these unsustainable amount of hours to sort of prove, or there's over communication. Um, there has to be, you know, more time with the boss that they're not getting. All of these things are just, they end up being sort of dealt with in, in their minds. If they go back to work, there's other impacts obviously on their mental health. When we're looking at not having, you know, having to have, you know, workload and all these other issues that are happening from being in the office too. It's not just a panacea. I'll go back and you know, all of a sudden you'll have, you know, the chief executive job, but there's, you know, there is a, a benefit and it's because of the, just the way we've worked for so long in this type of, you know, mode. Interesting. Now the flip side of this, of course, is when CEOs of Apple, Google, uh, Netflix, and, and others started issuing timelines about, okay, well, you got to come back at this date or that date. And this, most of it, of course, was pre the Delta variant. But, but regardless, these big CEOs of some of the most progressive uh, digital companies on planet Earth uh, suffered a mutiny. And, you know, there were expectations that some meaningful percentage of employees would give them the middle finger and say, well, go fuck yourself. Agency is incredibly important. I've heard uh, uh, many a headhunter say that um, work from anywhere is now is the new signing bonus. And if you're trying to tell me Google, Apple, Microsoft, that I got to come back, I'm going to go get another job. I actually like this digital, um, this new digital work environment. I like sitting here in my board shorts or jammies. I moved from some, you know, highly expensive, highly congested, highly polluted urban center to Wyoming or Montana or wherever the fuck I moved. And I'm not doing any of that. So there's this whole other side of it. So I'm curious uh, um, what your assessment based on the data, based on your work, based on your colleagues work of the other side of this is. 
you know, as a workplace wellness and happiness and unhappiness expert, having that flexibility has been something I've long advocated for. So this is sort of my dream right now is that employees have way more control over uh, the way that they transact with their relationship with their boss. It used to be purely transactional and one-sided. And now there's nuances to that. It's really changed. And I think it's phenomenal. You look at Microsoft's survey, which you might be familiar with, but they just released this global survey. And it found that about 41% of people are saying, I'm going to leave my job or leave my career entirely, even if I don't have mental health, you know, supported at work and some of these other important um, qualifications for me wanting to be that at that job, only 4% rated compensation as the reason they were leaving. So this is paradigm shifting. And, and I've been talking about this as the sort of Uber taxi moment for workforces in that if they don't get on board to this, and they still say everyone back in the office, and this is how you're going to work, and you don't have a choice and deal with it. And if you don't live in the city, I'm going to pay you less, you know, all of these sort of ways that they used to be able to behave, they're not allowed to do it anymore. I mean, some, I guess, will, there'll still be some that, you know, the brand is so strong or whatever it is that people will adhere. And then there's people that, you know, obviously don't feel like that they have the choice because it is a place of privilege to be able to say, you know, screw you, I'm leaving. But um, for the majority, what we're seeing is that there's so much more choice for employees and that's going to drive the change. And attrition is extremely expensive. So employers aren't going to want to deal with 41% of the workforce changing over. That is a massive economic impact on them. And so they're going to add in these policies. And so when I'm seeing this declaration from one company to the next about you know, having this flexibility and offering hybrid for a company, for example, you know, some of these uh, Silicon Valley companies, you know, life on site is like, that was the campus was the place and like everything happened on campus. You lived and breathed there. It didn't matter if you never saw your family. It was like, everything could be done on site. By chance, have you been to the campus of Facebook by way of example? Yes. Yeah. eBay, Google, all of them. These um, places are like there. fucking, di- these places are like fucking Disney world for employees. There's right? I mean, it's there. Yeah. You can take cooking classes and archery and shit on, at lunch. I mean, it's, this is not any workplace. And, 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 you know, maybe this gets to sort of the big thing I wanted to get to you on, uh, which is. On one hand, a lot of your work, if I'm interpreting it correctly, is centered on what both companies and individuals can do to avoid the bad shit and to have satisfying careers and build companies where people feel uh, they can do legendary work and they're accepted and they're celebrated and they're this and they're that. So there's a strong culture that enables people to do great work. And as an employee that I have some agency and I can be creative and I'm respected and I'm sort of that you, you, you grant me an environment where I can do legendary work. So I think at a high level, all of that makes sense. At the same time, uh, George Carlin, the great philosopher, as you know, uh, talked about uh, the, what he called the pussification of America. I'm sure you've heard this before. And my first time going to the Facebook campus, my reaction was, 
if this is what it takes to get you to come to work and be committed at work, what a fucked up company Facebook must be. (laughs) And so where's this sort of line between, um, on one hand, I want to create a super compelling employee experience and I want you to come to our company and have a legendary career and hopefully be here for the rest of your career. But if you leave and become an alumni, that you viewed your time at our company as one of the greatest times in your career. If I have that mindset as an executive, as an HR leader, as a CEO, et cetera, that makes all the sense in the world to me. At the same time, if we create a campus that's Disney World, what is it really saying about sort of our values and, and, and the importance of our work? And then, if you'll allow me, that also sits next to how much responsibility does the individual employee have for their own mental health, their own well-being, so that, you know, I forget the author's name now, the, the great book, The Coddling of the American Mind, right? And so, on one hand, we want to have a legendary environment for our people, but at the same time, hey, listen, if I'm an executive in a company, if I'm the CEO of the company... I'm not fucking responsible for your happiness. You are. It's your life. It's your career. I'll give you a set of tools and capabilities. I'll try to create a great environment for you. But there's some line here that says, hey, you got to show up and you got to do legendary work. And so I'm, I'm so curious how you think about finding all of these lines. Well, I think the reason why maybe the book's provocative and some of the stuff that I've been writing is provoking people to to start thinking about this is that all that stuff is, it's just extra, you know, it's just the perks. And when you look at, I, I love Herzberg's theory of motivation, this idea that, and he was actually mentored by Maslow. And I think that's why I love the research so much, but it's this idea that if you want to motivate, that's awesome. And all that stuff that you're describing is motivation, the archery classes and the chef you know, that feeds you and your dry cleaning and all that stuff. Those are perks. They're extras. And that's great if you're a really rich company and you can give all those things. But you're also, you know, uh, encouraging people to never come home. You're also encouraging people to never see their family. They're working unsustainable hours. They're exhausted. You're giving them perks like egg freezing, which I think is the most sexist, you know, discriminatory type of perk you could possibly give someone. Like these are the kind of things that we, we, that a lot of. Hold on a second, Jennifer. Hold on. Are are companies offering to pay for egg freezing now? Is that what you just said? Yes. Facebook's an example of that where they do pay for you to freeze your eggs, which says, I mean, so many isms, ageism, sexism, you know, just all of that is, is supposed to be a perk and they're just getting it so wrong. It's like saying, I'm going to get a, give a week off to my burned out, out employees. Like those are the kind of things where you got to stop the burning out. So you don't have to give them the, you know, the week off, you need to give people manageable workloads so that they don't go back into the fire. People inherently want to have productive, healthy working relationships and family relationships. They want integration and balance. They don't want to be at work all the time. And what becomes an environment like that is that when people leave and take time away, that's this whole, I'll give you unlimited PTO, for example, unlimited vacations, but you're going to be looked down on for leaving. And when you go away, you're going to have to answer emails the whole time. And when you come back, you're just going to have a shitload of work to do. All of those things are just failures at handling 
um, the hygiene, which is Matt, the other Herzberg's theory is that if you don't have the hygiene there, which are those basic needs met, then you can't motivate. It's only going to make people feel like they're unhappy in their jobs. And that's why I see the revolt because, and maybe it's just lack of information or not really understanding what burnout is, what chronic stress is, what people really need and want. But when you actually talk to people about what their needs are, they aren't these other things. Those are nice to have, but they're not need to have. And that's why people are leaving in droves. And they're just saying, you know what? I have a frame of reference now. I spent 20 months, 20 months facing my own mortality. I know what it's like to think about death in a real way. I probably had someone in my family die or I had to deal with sending my kids to school in an unsafe you know, environment. There's things we've had to deal with that has changed us. And so that's what's happening now is people saying all that other shit is fine. You want to give that to me? Great. But I don't need that. I need you to take care of like, I need you to make sure that you don't make me sick. Like that's the ask now is don't make me sick. So it isn't about like worrying about as a leader, I don't need to worry about making you happy, but I do need to worry about not making you sick. And I think that's the thing is that employees need to have their own psychological fitness. They play a role. But employers cannot be responsible for making someone mentally unwell. I get that. That makes a lot of sense. And again, where's this line? You know, I uh, knew an executive over the last uh, handful of years, and this person joined um, a very high-profile company and a very high-profile C-level job. And shortly thereafter, uh, one of their parents died. And that took this individual out for over a month. And then something else happened. And then something else happened. And then, and it was like, at one level, you, you have empathy as a human being. But at the other level, you kind of go, hey, you've been here a fucking year and you've never done your job. And so, again, where is this line between, yes, of course, if you have a tragic death, I understand. I've experienced horrible tragic death in my life. I, I the pain and suffering of it is unbearable. And at the same time, sooner or later, somebody's got to pay the rent around here. <laughs> you know, I, I do hear what you're saying. And I think that there's, you know, there's circumstances that every single organization has to deal with one-offs like that. And I do get that. But right now, the grief policies are two days off only, you know, if your mother or father dies or a child dies, you know, it's, the, and there aren't even standard norms. So I think we need to deal with these one-off situations where, yeah, the senior executive is gone for a year versus the standard, you know, basics that we need across the board where grief policies don't necessarily need to be, you know, just your mom or your dad. You know, there needs to be a more, you know, or child. There needs to be other way of thinking about how we handle grief in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and what kind of loss we're dealing with and the loss of our old lives and all of the, the strain that, that we're dealing with from a grief standpoint. I think standards are just table stakes. You know, we need to have paid family leave so that the family planning isn't just going to, to women. We need to have, you know, examples like Hewlett Packard where their paternity and maternity leaves are 
really robust and they're equitable so that men don't feel like they can't take the time off too. This is because, because burnout comes from societal discrimination too. I mean, when you look at those root causes, one of them is lack of fairness. And that doesn't just come inside an organization. That's hundreds or thousands of years of people feeling marginalized. You know, that's women and not looking at solving for the wage gap until 2,292. I mean, these are big problems to solve, but organizations can do these things that are just standard and practical that take a bit of that down. So, you know, when we talk about the edge cases, that's, that's important for us to figure out and nuance within our own senior leadership teams, but the basics, I mean, that's not even, we don't even have a, you know, in the U S there's not even a standard paid leave act. Like that when you go on when you go to uh, pick up your check for those six weeks that you're off, you have to actually go to the disability office. And as a woman, I know as a Canadian that had my ch- children there for you know I had two um, now dual citizen children, going and getting a disability check when having a baby feels fundamentally wrong. And so these are things that organizations can play a role in saying, no, I don't see you as disabled. And I don't think because you're a man, you shouldn't take time off to bond with your child. And and a lot of that is not table stakes. Again, these are the big companies that have progressive ways of thinking about it. This This should be hygiene. This should absolutely be hygiene. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. Now, by way of context, at the beginning of this year, uh, I found myself burnt out. Not not burnt out, blown the fuck up. Yeah. And um, without dragging you through all of the horrible details, the, the reality is in our family prior to COVID, um, we suffered a horrible, absolutely horrible home invasion murder. And uh, then that was about six months before COVID. And then COVID hit. And a few months after that, we suffered a surprise, tragic, accidental skateboard death. And those two things happened within roughly nine months of each other. And COVID sprung up in the middle of it. And the aftermath of all of that uh, has been beyond extraordinary for everybody in our family. And it has come with severe uh, physical consequences, uh, illness from the stress. And um, for me personally, at the beginning of this year, after, you know, I consider myself a warrior. I'm a fighter. And I fought through all that shit. And, uh, but I got to a place this year in January or February where I was blowing up. And I didn't recognize it. And were it not for a handful of people who love me, because as I found out, virtually everybody who loved me was very, very afraid for my well-being. And I didn't realize how bad it was. And so um, they stepped in and they supported me and they loved me and they also kicked me in the ass. And I have a great doctor and it took a lot to write the ship. And not just for me, for others in uh, our family as well. And so my question is, all of us have gone through in the last handful of months, an extraordinary worldwide, you know, massive set of pain and suffering around a whole number of dimensions kicked off by COVID, social unrest, 
um, you know, the awakening around around the treatment of people of color in the United States and, and on and on and on. And so if I say, hey, listen, on one hand, I want to work for a company who gives a shit about me and creates an environment where talking about mental health is encouraged and we try to give you the work-related tools for you to have a legendary career here. And, and, and we, we understand that you have a life outside of here and we want you to be a great mom and a great dad if you're going to do that or a great brother or sister and, and, and go exercise and, and take that painting class, you know, whatever the fuck, right? We want you to have a great life and we want you to do legendary work here. And at the same time, I, I recognize the fact that, hey, I'm responsible for my life. However, in the case of an extraordinary set of circumstances like we all have been through, we can become blind to the fact that we are on the verge of blowing up and getting potentially very sick or even worse. And so how do we know what tools, Jennifer, would you give me and others around how do we stay on top of ourselves in these high stress, high cortisol in a foxhole situation that go on for a very long period of time so that we don't just blow up? Well, I want to say first that, I mean, this is an extraordinary loss that you're describing. This is, this is uh, more than maybe a lot of people have been dealing with. I mean, we've been dealing with the collective trauma, but what you're talking about has a whole other, a bunch of other impacts to it, you know, where you're dealing with loss of trust of society and people around you and accidental death, especially of someone that's, you know, younger than us is against our norms, you know, against what we understand to be right. So I think that's very um, specific, but also you're right. A lot of people are dealing with these unimaginable horrifying experiences right now that uh, look at how many people have lost a loved one to COVID and couldn't even get into the hospital to say goodbye in person. They had to say goodbye on a fucking iPad. It's, it's devastating. And like I said, the normalization um, is been, has been the biggest problem because we're seeing, you know, this little idea that, you know, one person is a tragedy and a thousand is a statistic. You know, we're seeing a lot of that where we're missing the point that it is one, not that everyone is a human being that had a life and a purpose and an intention and now they're gone. And there's people it's, you know, it's like we've exploded people's lives, you know, over and over again. Some people have lost multiple family members because that's what seems to happen within, you know, vulnerable groups too. Multiple people are just all dying within these homes. And so there's, there's catastrophic impacts. And, and what, you know, people are saying really is that we are going through a collective trauma. We are all traumatized. Even the folks that are, you know, that are saying that they're coping well, are flourishing. There's about 20% in all the data, you know, 20% are flourishing well or coping well. They even feel a sense of guilt for feeling okay. Like there must be something wrong with them feeling well. So everyone's feeling it. And then there's also these other impacts. And then we're also feeling for other people because of what's going on in their lives. The thing is, is that one of, I guess, you know, the benefits to going through these types of situations collectively is that we have um, we have opened more of the doors to have these conversations. We have opened the the floodgates, I would say, 
more conversations. And because, you know, I have talked to to a lot of leaders. I do this talk, exhausted leaders leading exhausted teams. And I think it's because um, they're realizing that what used to just be this group and us or them moment has become synonymous. You know, you have a senior executive female who is a single mother um, who also can talk to someone that's in an administrative role in a different part of the company, all going through the same things that has created a bit of a parody um, of experience. And so whenever that happens, it maybe we can't fully understand the extent of that person's grief because it's so much bigger and larger than what we are going through. But we are talking about it more. And I think that that is what is going to be consequential is just that we are starting to have, we are starting to have tools that are more further upstream being brought into organizations. Like, you know, I think of BetterUp or Talkspace or some of those technologies where it isn't just, you know, listen, you know, to um, rain for 15 seconds. And I don't want to, you know, say anything bad about those technologies that do provide that kind of, you know, motivation and um, support, but they aren't going to solve for some really big issues around grief. Mindfulness is, is a helpful tool. But when we're talking about offering actual therapy on demand at work for people to access and bringing in, you know, psychotherapists and social workers and, you know, psychiatrists to actually be in facility, you know, where we're saying there's a crisis line that we've now implemented, you know, these are things that are very far upstream and weren't in existence before. Um, And I think that from that standpoint, when we start to implement these ways of actually getting mental health therapy and we're getting access to crisis support systems that are embedded and more leaders are talking about their own personal crises, that's a shift. And um, that's really what we need to be able to do is access those support systems before we explode we need to recognize that right now we're on a precipice, most of us. Most of us are feeling really kind of on in the danger zone. And that's because we've had so long living in a macro stress environment. So we should all sort of anticipate that we're going to maybe have a explosion moment. And instead of waiting till we're there or before we need intervention, Think about what are some of the things that we can start building into our lives that bring in a therapist, bring in, you know, psychological support systems, create a strategy, an individual strategy for ourselves that doesn't necessarily need work to supply that for us and create that environment, that village so that we can, if we need them, be able to access them a lot faster. Thank you for that. And if I'm a, uh, if I'm a CEO or an entrepreneur, are you advocating that our company look at providing these kinds of services or what are you advocating that we do in this regard? A hundred percent. We should be, leaders should start to think about first having uh, therapeutic supports inside of organizations. So not just, you know, not just band-aid solutions, perks, technology that's going to help you motivate. We need to be looking really, really far upstream in those types of solutions. That is on-site support and um, and also these other technologies where you can get virtual 
therapy, telehealth obviously has really increased. But what we also need to do is make it mandatory that we have manager training that isn't just, you know, manager training in that they need to be mental health experts, because that's just, that's not fair to ask every single direct manager to be a mental health expert. But they, I mean, and that's what they fear often. Managers often fear, I don't want to have this conversation because I don't know how to address these issues if these issues come up. But what they need to to be able to know um, and do inside of their organization is direct, you know, be a traffic cop, direct people to where those support systems exist in the company and make it really easy for employees to know where they are, have lots of communication. And and then their role isn't to necessarily deal with these really urgent, potentially um, crisis um, style conversations, but more be able to, again, like move people in the right direction. And they become a trusted source of knowledge and information versus being that expert that they need to deal with in the moment. And that really helps, um, I think, both sides, managers feeling less pressure to come up with all the answers and employees feeling like if they talk to their boss about their own um, mental health issues, that they'll be stigmatized. And so there's a big sort of macro, you know, plan, and then there has to be a direct manager plan too. Interesting. This may sound like a funny leap to you, but in the aftermath of the Enron scandal, where so many employees at Enron had the vast majority of their 401k or in Canada, RSP, uh, tied up in the company stock, there was a change in sentiment. There might even have been a change in some laws. I'm not sure, but there was definitely a change in sentiment around the role a company should play in helping uh, employees plan for their retirement Uh, You know, many companies offer some kind of a matching or this and that. And so there was sort of this newer set of financial services that um, new categories of financial services that emerged to allow companies to provide their employees access to some kind of financial planning, some kind of diversification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when these new categories of services to employees show up that are highly personal, somebody's money, somebody's mental health. If I was a general counsel, and I spent zero time in law school, but I know a lot of legendary GCs, uh, I can I can just hear them saying, "Hey, wait a minute! This we live in the excited states here, people, and if we provide a mental health, mental well being services, and somebody subscribes to some kind of a therapy therapist, etc., and then either a has some horrible complaint, you know, the therapist fucked me up sort of argument and they sue the company for a billion dollars or B, God forbid, you know, we live in the United States. There are mass killings weekly here. There is a very real scenario under the circumstances you're describing that says a uh, person with mental challenges at work gets therapy through work and God forbid, I hope it doesn't happen, but you can see it. It's going to show up at work and show up with a gun and do something terrible. And then you can imagine that kind of a lawsuit. And so I know you're no lawyer, Jennifer, but how do you think about, on one hand, we want to provide these kinds of services because it can make a difference. But on the other hand, in the litigious United States, where you can get a lawyer to work for you on contingency, companies can be sued in a thousand ways around this if they step in and want to do authentically caring things. Well, I think the liability is more um, 
you know, what you're more at risk in the absence of these support tools. You know, what if someone has been identified and they are self-reporting that they're really suffering and they've talked to their manager, but there's nothing available to them to be able to work through some of these problems. And then they go and there's an incident with a gun inside of an organization. There's more likely for them to be able to, you know, sue to say that this person had put their hand up, but the company didn't help them. And this is what led to these situations arising. And so I think when you come, but but I hate to cut you off, but But if the company takes a position, if I'm a CEO and I take a position that says, hey, listen, my contract with my employees, I am not responsible for their mental health. If they don't like working here, if they think we push them too hard, if they whatever, whatever, this is a free country. You can go work wherever you want. And if I if I start providing mental health services, I'm on a slippery slope because I'm now acknowledging that the company does have some role in this. So as a matter of fact, by doing this, I actually make it worse. And if, God forbid, one of them, my employees did show up at work and do something horrible, the fact that I don't provide mental services means I can't be tied to this thing. Well, I think that's the argument is that are you a liable for having mental health supports or are you liable for not having mental health supports? And I think that that is, you know, the risk you take. So, I think lots of organizations will have made that choice and now they're realizing, well, I don't really have, you know, I have to get a handle on this because I'm losing my workforce. There's other reasons why businesses and most of them do, you know, come down to revenue and shareholder value and, you know, the business metrics that are, that determine whether they're going to invest in something or not. And if they found data that proves that having these things will keep their employees happier and they don't spend X amount of money on attrition, that's what they, that's why they make their, these decisions. I'd love to think that some of these organizations make human centered decisions and that they really do care about their people. And I'm sure some of them do, but when it really boils down, the reason why right now there's so much action around this issue is because people are quitting over it and it's a cost, you know, it's a, it's a loss on their books. So that's why this is changing. And so they're probably putting in the risk of liability on a whole bunch of different factors, but when it really boils down, the cost of attrition takes over all of those other, you know, takes sort of the the cake right now. And that's where the change is coming from. Fascinating. It, it sounds it sounds a bit cynical, but I, I've sort of been predicting this for a while and that, you know, you start to see more companies realize not the positive benefits, because that's what we found with happiness. There's these positive benefits and we measured against NPS, EMPS, revenue. We measured all of the metrics that mattered for CFOs to say, this is what well employees look like. And yet the only way that the needle moved was, um, I'm going to quit unless you, you know, unless you give me X, what I need. And that's what's happening right now is that uh, these progressive companies where the happiness was nice to have, that was extra, even though it gave them all of this data back to show that it was beneficial to them, they don't care. It's about where the losses are. And that's when we start to see the drive for change. Uh, and like I said, it's it's too bad, but I'm happy to see whatever the outcome is. It's not about the battle. It's about the war. Further evidence that human beings are mo- more motivated by the downside than the upside. 
And it also makes me think um, around the legal issue. I don't know. Maybe it already is. But if it's not, maybe it's an opportunity for a new category of insurance. <laughs> um, yeah. Depressing, right? Yeah, <laughs> we, this is the United States. It's maybe a little bit less of a risk in Canada. But anyway, um, well, Jennifer, your work is fascinating. You, you're incredible. Um, clearly, I could talk to you about this stuff for a very long time period of time, but I also want to be respectful of your time. Are there any other uh, key things that you want to touch on before we, uh, before we wrap? No, you know, when it comes, the one thing that I really like to just mention before, uh, you know, before I leave a conversation is just for people to be reminded that burnout is not your, your fault. You know, we, there's a lot of shame and guilt attached to feeling exhausted and, you know, depleted and cynical and disengaged. But we are in a global pandemic and people should just be patting themselves on the back every day for surviving. And the fact that we still are in these environments where there's an expectation to be in high growth mode and, you know, to be achieving the insurmountable, it should be just that we're getting through the day and that people are able to, you know, meet the sort of basic expectations. And, and maybe we need bosses and managers and companies to sort of just ease off you know, kind of look at what the expectation is of success. And if it is to have a workforce that's still alive in the next five years and your company to not be obsolete because you've lost every single employee to to burnout, then maybe it's about writing the ship now before it's too late. Do you think um, one of the things I hope for, and I see in certain places, um, is an increased humanization of work. And, and this has been the arc of my whole career. You know, I'm 53 years old. I started at 18. And when I started, um, you had to be fucking professional. You know, and you wore a tie and you did all that stuff. And, and the axiom was, um, hey, listen, don't conflate uh, your personal life and your professional life. Don't talk about your personal life at home. Don't, you, that just leads to pain and suffering. That's just bad things. You have personal relationships. You have professional relationships. Keep it professional. That was it. And of course, that has radically changed over time. And it seems to me, but you're the expert. So I, I really mean this as a, as a curious question, that the combination of the, in, the massive increase in native digitals in the workforce uh, I think I read, I'm trying to remember what the stat is, Jennifer, but I, th it might be, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know, you have a 60% chance today of working for a millennial, like having a millennial boss. I think we're now at that. Is that does that sound right to you? Yeah, that's the, about the data that I remember too. Yeah. Okay. I knew it was sort of generally in that area. So uh, there's a high chance that uh, whether you're a millennial or not, whether you're a native digital or not, that your boss is one. And it seems like this generation is if I could call it this way, a little more human at work, that they are more of a mindset, and correct me if you, you think this is not right, that business is personal and we should bring our quote-unquote full self to work. And so are we sort of in an interesting time here where the future of work is being created before us and it's going to be a more human, more personal, more connected environment? Or am I just... Have I just been living on the West Coast too long and I'm, I'm <laughs> just uh, listening to too many uh, feel-gooders and do-gooders? I'm Canadian, so I'm in the same space as you, a bit of a, you know, a bit of an irrational optimist maybe. But um, no, I, I 
we've, there's lots of really great research that shows that this generation is more global minded, that they're more empathetic, you know, compassionate when it comes to, um, to just the rest of the world and thinking about it in a bigger, um, broader sort of way, all encompassing sort of way. So that changes how they're working and how they think about work. So that has changed. We've seen that over the last, you know, decade and the demands because they're the largest workforce in history that has also, um, made that the expectation at work. And so that's just going to start to drive that naturally because of the type of personality um, of what we see. And not every millennial is that way. I don't want to define a generation, but I think, you know, if I had to be defining a generation as empathetic and, you know, hum- human centered, that's a good thing. But one of the things that, you know, and and I don't like to talk about silver linings of the pandemic, but I do like to talk about the fact that true resiliency comes from rebounding. and some of the things that we have developed this last year, whether we liked it or not, has been psychological fitness. We have developed cognitive gratitude. We've had to focus on what we have versus what we don't have. We've developed by proxy cognitive um, optimism because we've had to create plan Bs and plan Cs and we've learned to get over not going on our trips, on our grads, to our proms. You know, we've changed the way we celebrate our holidays. We've had to let go of, you know, we've had this grief of loss of tradition. It's developing our cognitive optimism. We developed social emotional flexibility. Um, We've had to pivot and we've developed our own sense of self-efficacy because we've had to relearn new skills uh, and learn new skills entirely brand new and have made that an adopted part of our day-to-day life. I mean, the, the amount of social emotional intelligence that we've just developed because we've gone through trauma will also change the level of ei inside of our organizations as well and so that is what we can if we want to reframe you know in startup life we always say never waste a crisis so we have to constantly think about how do we intentionally move forward how do we not waste this crisis and look at this as an opportunity for real change, real sustainable change. And sometimes you have to swing the pendulum really far in one direction, direction feel the pain, feel the, the horrible, you know, trauma of a situation that takes you in a post-traumatic growth moment. And I think that's where we could possibly go is into a place of post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress. Wow. Very well put. And maybe just before you go, um, I meant to ask you earlier, but we got on some kind of a roll. How, how's your husband doing these days? He's doing really well. You know, that moment was a catalyst for us. He never went back to play. He, We moved back to Canada, reshifted our priorities, became really sort of family focused and focused in on what we want to do to try to impact the world from that experience. And, you know, how you get over grief. I'm sure you get this, but the going through grief it's putting some sort of purpose to what you went through. And I think that has made um, me a champion and an advocate to really care about people's well-being at work as we spend so much time there. And when you love it, it can be so wonderful. It can be fuel. It can be incredible. If you love what you do, you know, it can be the passion that makes you feel in that state of PERMA, the accomplishment, the engagement, the meaning that leads to happier lives. So these things that we think are really hard uh, tend to, if we utilize, if we leverage in the right way, tends to be the right path forward. And so he's, he loves it. He, in the company, his role was chief happiness officer. 
Um, and that's what he gets to do for his uh, living is be a chief happiness officer, which is pretty cool. It sounds like maybe the greatest title ever. (laughs) (laughs) It is. is. Every organization I think should have a chief happiness officer. Amen. All right, Jennifer, is there anything else? No, this was really great. I'm glad we got to just sit and talk and, you know, solve all the problems in the world together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for this incredible time and your insights and your experience and your research and bringing in all that of your colleagues. Um, and of course, for your new book, um, it's, it's a great piece of work at a very important time. And I appreciate you very much. And you're welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, there she is, the legendary and talented Jennifer Moss. And she is the author of the brand new number one bestseller, The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. And it's available everywhere you get legendary books. And if you love this episode, the podcast app you're listening to has a share feature. Press that button right now and send this to everybody in your contact list. Because God knows all of us have been at least a little freaked out over the last little while. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping us dream, plan, and live our best life. Check out number one, LifeFullyLived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the first dedicated distant assistant company. They've been physically distancing before that was a thing. And you see, if you need a human being who's your dedicated assistant, who is nowhere near you and will never get near you, that's bottleneck.online. My friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Don't forget, the first thing a prospect sees when they check you out is your website. And so it matters. Check out atre.net today. I'd also like you to consider making a justice deposit, moving some of your personal and or your company's cash deposits to black-owned banks. So you see, because the more money they have, the more money they can lend. And every single loan is a dream coming true. So please consider moving some of your cash deposits to a black-owned bank today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. If you happen to be into marketing, why not check out our marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. And we have some exciting news coming from him soon. If you're somebody who's considering making a career change, Jason has got a new newsletter on Substack called The Pivoteer. Check it out on Substack, The Pivoteer, on how you can pivot and uh, take on a whole new legendary career. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do the technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome and talented uh, GM, Simon. Don't forget to fuck hustle. Uh, spread podcasts, not viruses. Listen to the tragically hip. <laughs> Lyle Lovett was right. Remember to just breathe. As Bill Walton says, just breathe and give yourself a little namaste from time to time. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Scott Amalonic, editor of uh, Inc. I mean, Stink Magazine. Sorry, Scotty. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay healthy, stay safe, take good care of each other. And until we hang out again, follow your different.